0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Monday is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. So designated because January 27, 1945, was the day that the largest Nazi death death camp brother, Auschwitz, was liberated by Soviet troops. We're going to mark that occasion on the program today by revisiting a conversation from last year with Eva Kor, a Holocaust survivor and victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. Mengele was given the name Angel of Death because of his position as an SS physician in charge of selecting which new prisoners of the camp would be killed or selected for forced labor. Kor and her sister launched a search for other twins who survived Mengele's experiments. They located 122 individual survivors. And Eva Kor founded Candles Holocaust Museum in Indiana. In 1995, she made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty to those individuals responsible for the Holocaust. Her act of forgiveness inspired some and angered others. Eva Kaur gave a talk on forgiveness titled Encountering Dr. Mengele, uh, April of last year at Utah State University as part of a symposium series on the Holocaust presented by the USU Religious Studies Program. And uh, in April of 2013, I reached Eva Kaur uh, in Indiana. Um, she was born in uh, 1934, a small town of Ports in Transylvania is what is now Romania. Here's that conversation. So tell me about uh, life growing up. Your parents, Alexander and uh, how do you Jaffa. pronounce your mother? Yeah, Jaffa. And yes. uh, you have a twin sister, Miriam. And, Correct. Uh, and then you had two older sisters.
1: Correct. So, and Alice. Cor- very good,
0: yes. Your father was a landowner and farmer?
1: Correct. And it was very peaceful, primitive uh, village. Uh, the children basically... In the winter we did go to school, but summer was no school and we helped raise vegetables and uh, raise flowers and help mom around the garden because there was always work around the farm. We had chickens, ducks, geese, sheep, horses, cows, and lots of field, wheat field, uh, corn field just about all the produce that you want, and basically a very busy, busy farm. We also had a winery. We had lots of grapes, a great area for raising grapes.
0: Great place to grow up, it sounds like.
1: Well, for, uh, yeah, we had an orchard that I think today's kids cannot relate to it, but we had every imaginable fruit tree, lots of apples, pear, cherry, peach, walnut, clums and we could, we the children could climb every single tree in the orchard.
0: And you were the the Moses family, correct? The only Jews in town?
1: It's not a town. We have oh. got to really go okay. away from the idea of town.
0: Okay, a small. That place. was
1: an unpaved street. Ah, okay. Of about a hundred families, no running water, no electricity. It probably was incorporated in some fashion or form, but that I was not aware of it. It's called port. In Romanian, it's spelled P-O-R-T with a little apostrophe under the T, which makes the pronunciation port. In Hungarian, it's spelled P-O-R-C because the C in Hungarian is a sound of T. But see, in international, as I am using it today, I am going with a P-O-R-T-Z to make sure that people understand it's the sound of T. And
0: in a very small place.
1: Well, uh, it's not on any map. Yeah. Absolutely not. If you sneeze as you drive on the highway, you miss the whole thing.
0: But uh, unfortunately, as, as things go, the, the the Nazis found the place. The Nazis yeah, took over. Yeah, they did. And yeah. that,
1: I can see my parents reasoning that the nazis won't come here because they the hungarians how they were allies of the nazis but they were reluctant allies and they were not really willing to give up the jews in transylvania and they tried to uh, drag it out and not conform with hitler's wishes
0: you were six when the nazis took over
1: Yes, I was six in the morning, the Romanian army marched out. They begged our parents to go with them. But my parents said, no, we are not going to go anywhere. And in the afternoon, the Hungarian army marched in. There was never a shot, nothing. And the Hungarian army were very polite, which we did not expect them to be. And my parents spoke Hungarian because most Jews in Transylvania, in order to get along with everybody, they spoke both languages. But at home, actually, we spoke Hungarian. That is my mother tongue. And so we could communicate with them. And my father became like an interpreter for the village head. And they stayed at our house because that was the only big enough house to accommodate some officers. Then within a week or so, the rules came in. My father had to go every two weeks to the nearby police station to present himself. If he didn't, he was going to be arrested. And that was very strict. And the threat, everything that they threatened us with was, if you don't do that, you're going to be arrested and taken away by fall the school started and we had a one-room schoolhouse because there were maybe 40 to 50 kids age 6 to 10 and they brought in new teachers controlled by the hungarian nazi party and they had a new book Printed in Hungarian by the Nazi party, and it said, if you have five Jews and you kill three, how many are left? That is the way I went to school and learned arithmetic.
0: Amazing. It it, it was in the math.
1: It was. And what I found out that my former playmates in the village were my new tormentors. Kids are very mean to one another. You give them an opportunity to pick on somebody, and they are going to do an outstanding job. And so they would call us dirty Jews, spit on us, and beat us up. And when we went to the teacher, the teacher would punish us. So really, we had nowhere to go with our problems. When we went home, we told my parents, And I expected, really, my mother more so than my father to march to school and straighten it all out. And the truth is that children always expect their parents to protect them. My parents couldn't, and they said, there is nothing we can do about it. You have to learn that we are Jews, and that's the way it is. And when you go to school, we want you to be the best student in school. When you come home, you help her on the farm, and at night you say your prayers, and God is going to help us, and everything will be okay.
0: What did your parents—what was the plan? Just sort of try to wait it out, to, everything will be okay after the war?
1: Let me tell you, my parents never shared any of their plans with us. We were the children. And I, would, I do not think that that was fair, and I resented it for many years. Also, we, the children, never had an opinion that the parents took in consideration. But I would say from my, from my parents' attitude that they said, and let me tell you what I said to my father so you would understand. Then I was eight years old, And I realized that our situation was getting worse and worse with the new restrictions. I said to my parents, we should escape to Romania. The Romanian border was only one hour by foot from our house. And uh, my parents said, you're just a little kid, more my father than my mother. You don't understand anything about life, big issues in life. We have a nice home here. We have plenty of food. You children go to school, and the Nazis won't come to pick up six Jews in the small village.
0: But of course, they did. They did. They did. My
1: father, to my greatest sorrow. My father was one hundred percent wrong, and I was one hundred percent right. So early nineteen. 19- so that is what I am getting their attitude from. They thought. This small village, they are not going to come and take us away. I understand it today a little bit better. I believe that nobody ever thinks that the worst thing will happen to them. It always will happen to somebody else. And that is true today. If you put out an alert in a city to evacuate the home because the flood is coming, where Katrina or other floods or other disasters... Many people didn't leave. Oh, we lived here before, we are going to make it, and they didn't.
0: And I suppose just the idea of genocide was, you know, wouldn't have been thought of.
1: Well, I, I don't really think that we understood that there was anything that evil possible. We heard a lot of rumors that Jews were being taken to Germany and murdered, but we didn't know where and we didn't know how. And we really developed a little hope and slogan that we would never be taken to Germany. In 1944, actually, it's going to be end of this month, will be 69 years that we were taken to the ghetto. And the ghettos were throughout Europe. And our ghetto was mostly an open field surrounded by barbed wire fences. There was one building the commandant headquarters, and we built our tent out of sheets and blankets. And uh, it rained a lot. We right there all all April and May rained. But we kept saying that the family is together, somehow we are going to make it. In the meantime, from the time we arrived, every head of the family was taken in for interrogation. My father was taken in toward the end of our stay in the ghetto. And he was brought back on a stretcher with bleeding whip marks. These were the Hungarian Nazis. And all his fingernails and toenails had been burned in an effort to find out where he hid all his gold and silver. And my father kept saying he was a farmer and all his money went into land and equipment to work the land, but they didn't believe him. They said all Jews had a lot of gold and silver, so they kept beating him. Then three days after my father was brought back, we were loaded into cattle cars, and they were telling us, the commandant of the ghetto said, you leave all your personal belongings behind because the place you are going to will have everything that you need. So this way, they could get a hold of our possessions immediately, and they could cram in a lot more people in the cattle car. We were crammed in about 100 people in a cattle car. It was hot. There were only four little windows at the top of the cattle car. The door was closed hermetically, and a bar came in from outside across the door, so you could not push the door open. Between each two cattle cars, there was a guard in a booth, and he had a machine gun, and he said, anyone trying to escape, I will shoot. Now, the train moved at top priority. It would only stop for one reason, to refuel when the train would stop, we were very, very thirsty. It was very hot in that cattle car. We had no, no provisions, nothing to drink. So we would ask the guard by our cattle car for water, and he would always say, five gold watches. And the grown-ups would gather and pass those gold watches, and then he would throw in a bucket of water through the window. It was a strange exercise in futility. And I wondered, for all those Days when we were there and many years after that, why did we do that? Because nobody got any real water to drink. I understand it in recent years. That was our only way of getting any information of where we were being taken. It was the end of the third day when the train stopped. We asked for water and the answer came back in German. I was 10 years old. And I instantly understood what happened. We have crossed the border into Germany. Our Hungarian guards have been changed to German. And that meant for all of us that the end was near. People in our cattle car were praying and crying and the train moved on. We were in the cattle car for another eight hours. The train stopped again. And we again asked for water, and this time there was no answer in any language, which I concluded this must be the final stop, and I was right. We heard a lot of Germans yelling orders outside, and then the cattle car doors swung open. A lot of people, thousands of people poured out onto a little strip of land called the Selection Platform. My mother grabbed my twin sister and me by the hand. We were her youngest children, and she hoped that as long as she could hold on to us, that somehow she could protect us. Everything was moving very fast. And as I looked around on that confusion, on that selection platform, I was maybe there 10 minutes when I realized that my father... And two older sisters disappeared in the crowd. I never, ever saw them again. So holding on to my mother's arm, hand, as a Nazi was running and yelling in German, twins, twins, we did not volunteer any information. He noticed us because we were dressed alike and we looked very much alike. And he demanded to know from my mother if we were twins. And my mother asked is that good? And the Nazi nodded yes, and my mother said yes. At that moment, another Nazi came, pulled my mother in one direction. We were pulled in the opposite direction. We were crying. She was crying. All I remember was my mother's arms stretched out in despair, as she was pulled away. I never got to say goodbye to her, but I did not really realize that this would be the last time that we would see her. And all that took 30 minutes from the time we stepped down from the cattle car and Miriam and I no longer had a family. We were all alone. And all this was done to us for one single reason, that we were born Jewish and we didn't really understand why that was a crime.
0: There's no way you could understand, right? No. Uh you're listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams, and uh, Monday is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and so we are revisiting our interview from last year with Holocaust survivor Eva Kaur. Uh, she's a twin, and for that reason, uh, she and her twin Miriam were, uh, were saved at the camp uh, to be experimented on horribly by uh, Dr. Joseph Mengele. We're going to get into talking specifically about Dr. Mengele's experiments on twins, including Eva Kaur and her twin, following a brief break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering Jewish rye, polenta cheese bread, and ciabatta sandwich buns.
0: You're listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we're hearing an interview from last year with Holocaust survivor Eva Kor. I reached her in Indiana. Uh, That's where she has founded the Candles Holocaust Museum there. In 1995, Eva Kor made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty to those individuals responsible for the Holocaust. Uh, She and her sister launched a search for other twins who survived Mengele's experiments. Uh, We're going to hear about uh, those parts of her story later in the program. Here's more from UvaCor. Now, the reason you were pulled out as twins, unfortunately, is is uh, because of Dr. Joseph Mengele, right? And, uh, right, yeah. And, 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 a, and that, genetic uh, experiments.
1: Yeah, but well, we didn't know anything. We became part of a group of 13 sets of little girls and one mother who, by miracle, was permitted to stay with her daughters. So there were 13 sets of little twin girls. Somewhere else on that selection platform, there were twin boys, but I was only involved and able to cope with my own little problem. We were marched to a huge building. Our clothes were removed. We sat naked for most of the day until late in the afternoon when our processing began. We, the twins, were given short haircut. The mother's head was shaved. Our dresses were returned with a huge oil-painted red cross on the back, and the mother was given striped prison uniform, so to have our own clothes and our own hair was a privilege that we were granted. And then they lined us up for registration and tattooing, and when my turn came, I decided that I would give them as much trouble as I possibly could. Four people restrained me two Nazis and two women prisoners. While they heated a gadget, it looked like a writing pen with a needle at the end, and they heated the needle over the flame of a lamp. When it got hot, they dipped it into ink, and then they burned into my left arm, dot by dot. The capital letter A, dash, 7063. Miriam became... Capital A 7064. Auschwitz was the only Nazi camp that tattooed its inmates. My husband is a survivor of four years in Buchenwald. He does not have a tattoo. Once we were processed, we were marched throughout the camp, we arrived at a barrack, a modular horse barn, no windows, the windows were on the elevated part of the roof. Inside, everything looked filthy and crude. Three-story-high bunk beds covered with a thin straw mattress and a dirty blanket. Miriam and I were given a bunk bed on the bottom, and we have not slept or stretched out in five days. So we thought maybe we could sleep a little bit, but human beings cannot function after such a traumatic day. As I was tossing and turning, I noticed something big and dark moving on the floor, and I began counting, one, two, three. By the time I got to five, I jumped up screaming, mice, mice. Coming from a small village, a big farm, I have often encountered mice and I was always scared of them. But a girl from the top bunk bed said, stupid kid, these are not mice, they are wet. And you better get used to them because they are everywhere. And now we couldn't even try to fall asleep. So Miriam and I went to the latrine. As I entered the place, there on the filthy latrine floor, there are the scattered corpses of three children. I have never ever seen anybody dead before, but to me the message was clear that that could happen to Miriam and me unless I did something to prevent it. So I made a silent pledge that I will do anything and everything within my power to make sure that Miriam and I shall not end up on that filthy latrine floor. From the moment we left the latrine, I did everything instinctively and everything instinctively right. I never let any doubt or fear enter my mind. I uh, never let go of that image of Miriam and me walking out of that camp alive until the day we were liberated.
0: Uh, so tell me about these, uh, this is just horrible to, to talk about these experiments that Dr. Mangala was performing on on you and the other twins.
1: Well, the, I was involved in two types of experiments, but that was not the whole scope. Because if twins were older than 16 or they were in a reproductive age, I realized from what I have been able to, to talk to other twins because we do not have any data. The Nazi data of Mengele's experiments disappeared. Anyway, I was taken, Miriam and I were taken three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, to a lab that I call the observation lab. There they would remove our clothes. We would stand or sit for eight hours a day every part of my body was measured compared to charts and compared to my twin sister these experiments were not dangerous but they were unbelievably demeaning and even in auschwitz i couldn't cope with that that they were treating me like a nobody like a nothing so the only way that i could cope with it was by blocking it out of my mind therefore all I remember about those experiments is that they lasted a very long time. In alternate days, on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we would be taken to another lab that I call the blood lab. There they would tie both of my arms, take a lot of blood from my left arm. At the same time, they would give me a minimum of five injections into my right arm. And those were the deadly ones. To the best of my knowledge, they were germs, diseases, and drugs. After one of those injections, I became very ill with a very high fever. It had to be August because my skin was burning from the sun, yet I was still trembling. Both my legs and arms were swollen and very painful, and I had huge red patches throughout my body. The next visit to the blood lab, they did not tie my arms for injections and blood taking. Instead of that, they measured my fever, and I knew I was in trouble. I was taken to the hospital, which was another barrack, but in this case, it was filled with people who looked more dead than alive. Next morning, Dr. Mengele and four other doctors came in to study my case, but they didn't study it. They never examined me. They just looked at the fever chart, and the Mengele declared, laughing sarcastically, he said, Too bad. is so young. She has only two weeks to live. I knew that Dr. Mengele was right, but I refused to die. I made a second silent pledge that I will prove Dr. Mengele wrong. I will survive and be reunited with my sister. For the following two weeks, I have only one clear memory. I remember often waking up on the barrack floor. I was crawling because I no longer could walk. And I was crawling to reach a faucet with water at the other end of the barrack. Because this barrack was not allocated any food, nor water, nor medicine. As I was crawling, I would fade in and out of consciousness, and I kept telling myself, I must survive, I must survive. After two weeks, my fever broke, and then I immediately felt a lot stronger, and it took me another three weeks before my fever chart showed normal, And I was released and reunited with the other twins and my twin sister, Miriam. But Miriam looked very sick. She looked like the living dead in Auschwitz, in my opinion. Dying was the easiest thing. Living was a full-time job. And sometimes the difference between living and dying is people who gave up their struggle to live one more day because that is all we could do. And they would sit, staring to space aimlessly. And that staring was scary to me because I know she gave up on her own struggle to live one more day. When I asked her, what happened? What have they done to you? She refused to talk. She said she couldn't talk about it and we never talked about Auschwitz until 1985. In 1985, I again asked Miriam, do you remember... That I was taken to the hospital. She said, "Yes." I said, "What happened to you?" Well, I was in the hospital. She said, "Well, for the first two weeks, they she was under Nazi doctor surveillance, twenty four hours a day. They were waiting for something to happen. She didn't know what that was because they didn't tell her, and she didn't know if whatever they were waiting for happened or it did not happen." And I told her it didn't happen because it was the same two weeks that Mangala said, I would die. Would I have died? Miriam would have been rushed to Mangala's lab, killed with an injection to the heart. And then Mangala would have done the comparative autopsies. I spoiled the experiment. I survived. And Miriam was not killed. According to the Auschwitz records, they had 1,500 twins used in Mengele's experiments. The estimated number of survivors is less than 200 individuals. Most of them died as a result of the experiment. Some might have died as a result of the conditions in the camp. Then I asked Miriam what happened to you after the two weeks were up. She said she was taken back to the lab, injected with all kinds of things that made her very sick. After the war, Miriam was always weaker than I was. She got married in 1958. In 1960, expected her first baby, and she developed severe kidney infections that did not respond to any antibiotics second pregnancy in 1963 got worse. This time the infection got worse, and the doctors wanted to understand it, so they studied her, and they found out that Miriam's kidneys never grew larger than the kidneys of a 10-year-old child. I begged Miriam not to have any more pregnancies, not to have any more children. But she didn't listen to me. She had a third child, and after the third child was born, she developed she developed immediately severe kidney problems. They tried to do the doctors whatever they could, but by 1987, her kidneys had failed, and she had to go on dialysis, or she had to go and have a kidney transplant. Miriam was a registered nurse, and she did not want to live with dialysis, I donated my left kidney, we were a perfect match. But a year later, Miriam developed cancerous polyps in her bladder. At that hospital near Tel Aviv, they have been doing kidney transplants for 10 years, so they had over 2,000 kidney recipients. All of them were given anti-rejection medication. Miriam was given also. None of them developed cancerous polyps, but Miriam did. They tried to deal with her cancerous polyps. They, they have given her all kind of anti-cancer medicine, but nothing really worked. Miriam died June 6, 1993. The only other thing that I want to... Tell you that we were liberated by the Soviet Army on January 27, 1945. For me to realize that my little promise to myself that first night in the latrine became a reality was an unbelievable experience. So we were free, we were alive.
0: That must have been a, a, an overwhelming feeling. Uh, you begin your life in in America. I think you had uh, some children.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was never. I don't know what normal is because what most people call normal, I didn't. I couldn't read English when I got here. Going to the grocery store was a whole challenge. Uh, when I got pregnant, for instance, my husband was going to be this magnanimous father and husband. He had never been to a grocery store before. He always ate in restaurants. So I made him a list to uh, buy at the grocery store, and I was looking in Hebrew and English dictionary, but translating, and I ended up on my list with a strange item, scarlet cucumbers. (laughs) And my husband came back an hour later and said, well, the store manager told me that they only have green ones. <laughs> but even you don't know the language, I must have accidentally looked at another word. But I didn't know what the difference was. <laughs> so I went with him to the grocery store and I showed him I wanted pickles.
3: In I see. Hebrew,
1: that is two words. And what it would have been correct if I would have found sour cucumbers. So life was a challenge all around. <laughs> all around. There yeah. was nothing easy. So I don't know what easy is because it's never been normal. What on earth is normal for most people? My children, for instance, would go to a birthday party, and then they had their birthdays, and they say, well, Mommy, where is our grandma and grandpa? We went to Joey's birthday party. He had his grandmothers and grandfathers there. How come we don't have any? So we were three years old. I tried to explain to them that there were bad people called the Nazis who killed their grandparents. Well, it was for a while everything they accepted, but they realized that... I was different than the other
0: mothers. You're listening to Access Utah. We're revisiting conversation with Holocaust survivor Eva Kor, who's the victim of uh, Joseph Mengele's medical experiments on twins at Auschwitz. She founded Candles Holocaust Museum in Indiana. You can find out more on the internet. In 1995, she made headlines for issuing a personal declaration of amnesty to those individuals responsible for the Holocaust and I talked to her last year uh, before she came out to USU as part of a symposium series on the Holocaust presented by USU Religious Studies Program. Eva core on Access Utah today. I wonder if you could tell me about the, the beginning of, of Candles, apparently 1978, miniseries The Holocaust, and you started wondering what happened to the to the other children?
1: Correct. I wondered, I, mean, I had the pictures, and the reason that I wondered was I couldn't find any detail of our experiment, and Miriam was already very sick. And I wondered what has been done to us. So I thought maybe if I could find these children who were liberated with us, that we could have a gathering, and we could piece together our memories, get a better understanding of what was done to us. But I had no names, no addresses, there was no internet, and I didn't know which direction to turn. I thought that my best hope was you in the media, any media, any communication. So what I started doing, writing letters to, if I would read the newspaper, I would write down the reporter's name. If I listened to radio, I would write down the reporter's name. Same with the television. And then try to find their addresses and tell them who I was and what I was trying to find. Could they please publicize the idea that I was looking for these children? And if nobody really responded. And not much happened. So wasn't until December of nineteen eighty three when suddenly I thought to myself, What if I formed an organization and made myself president, maybe I could impress them because I was just Eva Core Survivor there wasn't much attention paid to what i was doing and this is the way that i put together the organization incorporated it in indiana in 1984 and i told my sister that she would be vice president and with her help and my brother-in-law my husband's brother that he came to visit in israel um she put in an article he was a journalist and he put in an article in the front page center in Mariv, and that brought within one week 80 telephone calls with 80 names. And uh, my sister said, now I have the names, you come and talk to these people because I don't know what you want. And then we, I flew to Israel and I told them that I would like to go back to Auschwitz. I think we need to know and show the world where we were and find out for ourselves, verify that that place really existed. And so that is the way the organization started. It is, we had names from 80 people, and by the time we went to Auschwitz in 1985, January of 85, NBC was decided to allocate a crew, but we had 122 names from 10 countries and four continents. So it was not an easy organization to try to manage. But uh, we went to Auschwitz and the world press followed us and the stories became better known. But then they found these bones in Ambo, Brazil in June of 1985 and nobody was interested in the story of the twins. Yet, we were left with the same problems that we had before.
0: And these bones were, were thought to be those of Dr. Mangala.
1: That was the, the official report is, but in my opinion, they were not. And I don't want to get into that because I rather, I think that is very controversial. The United States government, I mortgaged my home on November of 1985 to have an inquest in Terre Haute. I invited the Justice Department, Office of Special Investigation, Neil Scher. I invited people from Germany. I invited Israeli experts. I invited survivors. I invited forensic pathologists. Dr. Michael Baden came to Terre Haute because we wanted to understand and we wanted a pathologist to help us sit through the forensic report. And um, what we found out from our a little simple and innocent project that Mangala's bones could not be through his bones in Brazil because Mengele suffered from osteomyelitis, which is an infection of the bone, in 1926. And the way they diagnosed it, he had a hole in the bone. That's the way it was diagnosed. Where well, the bones found in Ambu Brazil had no hole on the leg. There was supposed to be. So, therefore, the Justice Department delayed the forensic report and the final report in the case of Mengele until 1992, October of 1992, when I knew that the report, the forensic report, not forensic, DNA report that was done by Dr. Alex Jeffries from Leicester University in England that that would come out. And then I contacted Oberhard Klein, who was the prosecutor for the Mengele case in Germany. He was very uncooperative. He kept changing the date of the press conference because I was going to be there. And I was going to ask a question that none of the reporters asked Can they verify where the sample of the bones came from and the sample of the blood it came from? There was no verification, no proof that any of the things came where they said they came from. And of course, that question was never asked because all I told Dr. Alex Jeffries in a letter, I said, Dr. Jeffries, I'm sure you are a great DNA expert. But you cannot prove to us that the bones came from the bones that Ambu, and that the blood came from Irene, the first wife, and Rolf Mengele, that child, together. So if you cannot prove that, all you can say that the bone and the blood came from the same family. But that could be anybody.
0: I wonder if you could, uh, this is remarkable, of course it got a lot of press, 1995, 50 years after liberation, you returned to Auschwitz, and you, you forgive. Actually,
1: we didn't get a lot of press. Oh, that you didn't? You amazing. didn't at the time? We
0: didn't. I, I I would have thought you would. This is this is remarkable. No,
1: actually, what we did there with Dr. Munch, we had at least 300 pages of press releases, handed them to people, and there were only three reporters from uh, one a French reporter, one an Israeli reporter, and one a German reporter who came to the press conference. The Israeli reporter wrote a nasty, scathing article about me that I am walking in Auschwitz hand-in-hand with a Nazi murderer. The German reporter was Bruno Scherach, who wrote a nasty article about Dr. Munch putting in his home address and Dr. Munch's house was firebombed. And then I talked to Bruno Chera, and I said, how dare you do that? He said, well, I got even for my grandfather who was an Auschwitz survivor. And the French was also a very alarmist report and the French underground Was going to, and they actually filed, the resistance movement in French fired lawsuits against Dr. Munch. So that is all I got in the press for that big, great event. Two adversaries meeting as friends.
0: Interesting, yeah. You and in in years since, uh, of course, and and you, you know, through the through the candles organization, you go around uh, talking. Um, you you do get interest, I'm sure, in this because it is remarkable that at that point you you forgave the Nazis.
1: I forgave the Nazis, and I will tell you that that idea of forgiveness, what people must understand, that it has nothing to do with Mangala. It has nothing to do with the Nazis, with Hitler. It has to do, it it does not do anything to help them. If it helps them, so be it. But it helps the victim. The world is filled with victims that are never helped and never healed. This is a very simple idea, and the way I came up with it Not that I ever even thought about it for a moment. I stumbled on it. When I met Dr. Munch at his home in Germany, it will be this August. It will be 20 years ago. And he treated me with tremendous respect, kindness, and consideration. I really went there in the hope that I could find out more information about our experiments because he was a friend of Mangalup's. That is what I was interested in. Well, he knew nothing about our experiment, but because he was polite, caring, and kind, I felt comfortable in his company, and out of the blues, I hear myself say, Dr. Munch, by any chance, do you know anything about the gas chambers in Auschwitz. Because, of course, there are the revisionists who say there was no Holocaust, there were no gas chambers. And this was my first and only opportunity to talk to a Nazi. And he immediately said... This is a nightmare that I live with every single day of my life, and went on describing the operation of the gas chamber because he was stationed outside looking through a people as people were dying. I have never heard about He said, people, the Zyklon D, which is pellets, looks like pellets of white gravel, were dropped from canisters from the roof outside. They fell to the floor, operated like dry ice, and the gas was rising from the floor. People in the sh- gas chamber or shower room, they were going to take a shower, but of course it was a gas chamber. They're trying to get away from the rising gas, climbing on top of each other, the strongest one ending up on the top of the pile. So when everybody was dead, there was a little mountain of intermingled bodies. The people on the top of the pile were the strongest ones. So when Dr. Munch saw that they they stopped moving, he knew that everybody was dead, and he signed one death certificate, stating no names, just a thousand, two thousand, or three thousand people. I never heard about that. To me, that was extremely important information. So I said to Dr. Munch that I was going to Auschwitz in 1995 to celebrate 50 years of the liberation of the camp. And would he please come with me and sign a document at the ruins of the gas chamber where it happened and in the witnesses, in the company of at least six witnesses. And he immediately said, yes. So I got back to Terre Haute, Indiana, very excited that I will have an original document signed, not by a survivor, not by a liberator, but actually by a Nazi who witnessed it. And I was very determined to thank him in some fashion or form. But I had no idea how does one thank a Nazi doctor. And in my efforts, I tried first of all to go to a hallmark shop and read thank you cards but to get some ideas but that was a wasted time then I went back to my own life lesson of never giving up and for the next 10 months when I was cooking cleaning or driving the car I kept asking myself How can I thank this Nazi doctor? And after 10 months, a simple idea popped into my head. How about a letter of forgiveness from me to Dr. Munch? I knew immediately that this was a meaningful gift for Dr. Munch, but what I discovered for myself was life-changing. I discovered that I, the little victim from Auschwitz, had the power to forgive. No one could give me that power, and no one could take it away. It was mine to use it in any way I could. Up to that time, I always reacted to what other people did to me. This was the first time I initiated something on my own to write a letter of forgiveness. It took me another four months to write that letter because I worked through a lot of pain. And then it occurred to me that somebody even might read my letter, and my letter is available on our website, under www.kandlesholocaustmuseum.org. Click on Education Center. The next paragraph will come up. Will be letters to the world, and there are Dr. Münch's documentation of the gas chamber, and my letter of forgiveness, which I call declaration of amnesty. And so I met with a former English professor in trying to correct my English spelling because English is a difficult language and I definitely have trouble with it. And then she said to me, now Eva, that's very nice that you are forgiving this Dr. Munch, but you really need to think about forgiving Dr. Mengele. Just do me a favor, when you go home tonight, just visualize that you are talking to Mengele and you are telling him that you forgive him and see how it will make you feel. And I, I did that and I realized immediately, I said, wow, I even have the power to forgive the God of Auschwitz. Because Mengele was God in Auschwitz. And once I decided that I could forgive Mengele and I was not hurting anybody, I decided to forgive everybody who has ever hurt me.
0: That's incredibly powerful. I imagine you have gotten some reaction, a uh, range of reaction, admiration, of course, uh, uh, wonderment, but also the criticism. How can you forgive something so awful?
1: Everybody says, how can you forgive? And when I tell them, I don't know if Mengele ever found out about it, knows about it, it does not matter. But what I find amazing is that That forgiveness is an individual act of self-healing and liberation and empowerment. I have power over my life today and tomorrow. What they did to me almost 70 years ago no longer stops me from being the person I want to be. And if we want to ever change the world from victim to victimizer, victimizer to victim, I call forgiveness a seed for peace. People who are at peace with themselves do not want to hurt anybody. But people who are angry because they have been victimized always want to lash out at other people. So anger is a seed for war. Forgiveness is a seed for peace. And I would like anybody who hears this report, I need all the help that you can give me to sow those seeds of peace throughout the world. Well,
0: that's a good place to end it. We very much appreciate your, your time. Very important message. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: My interview with Eva Kor, Holocaust survivor. More information at her Candles Holocaust Museum in Indiana. Coming up on Monday, we have uh, live coverage from the legislature, including an interview with Governor Herbert. Thanks for listening.
2: Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Marlene Hammond and her sister Priscilla Hammond, polygamist wives from Centennial Park, Arizona, talk about the Short Creek Raid of 1953, which at the time was described as the largest mass arrest of men and women in modern American
3: history. It was in the heat of the summer and they came in and they took the men incarcerated them in the schoolhouse and so they were separated from their families and they would not allow the families to go eat in their homes. They set up a cook camp out in a field in the heat. It had actually been raining so it was muggy and then it dried out and people had to go out there and eat. They couldn't be eating in their own homes and it was very oppressive for many of us. And then they took the men down to Kingman, Arizona and put them in jail there Before they brought them back, they had the ladies and the children were all put on buses and taken away. And they planned to adopt the children out and destroy the records to try to obliterate our culture. This was not the first time that they had done this, because when our father was newly married to his first two wives in 1944, they had come in and he had been arrested at that time also. So this was actually the second time that our father had been arrested for the practice of plural marriage in his life. And while it's very much a part of our religion and our belief in the fundamental principles that Joseph Smith established, the laws against it have been very very cruel in a way to our people that are practicing it because it makes victims out of the people. And for this reason, the plural culture has become isolated. And we've isolated ourselves to protect ourselves. And so the 53 Raid was on a much larger scale than the 44 Raid, of course, because every woman and child was taken from the community. So my own mother was taken to Phoenix and put on a milk truck and dropped off on the doorstep of a total stranger who opened the door to her and her three little girls and said, Well, I don't know what you're doing here because I had asked for a boy to come and live with me. And so she took them out and led them out behind her home into an old tool shed that she had cleaned out, and she had put two little cots in this tool shed, and she said, this will be your new home away from home. And when my mother saw that and the conditions that she was going to have to live in there in, that, in the heat of Phoenix, she sat down and, on the edge of the cot and started to cry. And the lady said, well, Mrs. Jessup, when you break the law, you have to be punished, don't you? But just three weeks later she went into labor with her fourth child and this lady had dropped her off on the hospital steps when she had started into labor and said that she would have to go home and take care of my mother's three little girls because there was no one else to take care of them there my mother was on the steps of an unfamiliar hospital and unfamiliar faces and all alone and far from home and far from her husband and any loved ones and she was very frightened of course and as soon as she went into the desk and and told them what she was there for and who she was and where she had come from, they immediately treated her very cool, and and they weren't kind at all. She said that they the doctors whisked her into a room, and when she came to, she realized that they had put her clear out to have her baby, and so she was unaware of anything that had gone on during that time period. They had done this without her permission. And when she came to, there was no baby, and she asked about her child and the newborn and said... Where's my baby? And no one would answer her. And she said that she literally pled for 48 hours with doctors and nurses and anyone who came into the room to tell her if her baby was dead or alive or if her baby had problems or or why they wouldn't let her see it. And she said no one would give her any kind of answers. Later, after 48 hours, they finally brought her little daughter into her brand new baby and put it in her arms and told her not to get attached to this baby because she could just see it. She She was able to see her for just a few minutes. But after this experience, she realized it was told to her that during this time period, the lawyers had been working frantically to figure out a way to adopt the child out without her ever seeing it or getting attached to it, because like Marlene said, they were trying to obliterate polygamy. But they realized soon after they got looking into the books there of the laws of Arizona that it was impossible to adopt a child out without the consent and the written consent of both parents. So they were not able to accomplish that deed of adopting my sister out. And I've often thought about that experience and thought how, how empty my life would have been without being raised with her because she was such an angel. Our father came down to Phoenix, unbeknownst to the law officers, and gave her a blessing and a name, and he named her Nan, which stood for No Attachment Nowhere, because at that time they were just made wards of the state, all of the children. These interviews were recorded at
2: StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org.
0: This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM hd One ninety one point five Logan. You can also listen on KCEU 89.7 in
2: price. It is now 10 o'clock. The Zesty Garden is up next.